is, he is the world's greatest genius, period. The most creative genius, period. But he's also somebody who, as you read about him, you say, oh, I could be more like that. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Walter Isaacson has written about geniuses like Steve Jobs, Benjamin Franklin, and Albert Einstein. In his latest book, he chronicles the life of the famous artist Leonardo da Vinci. But Isaacson says da Vinci was much more than just an artist, and the legacy he left includes lessons for us all. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Walter Isaacson says Leonardo da Vinci thought of himself not only as an artist, but also a scientist and an engineer. He was self-taught and studied anatomy, flying machines, botany, and weaponry. He wanted to know all of the profound beauties of creation, Isaacson says. His studies outside of art informed the artwork itself. He dissected eyes and discovered how light falls into the eye. His examination of how people move in response to emotion led to an extraordinary depiction of the Last Supper. He grew up in Florence in the late 1400s when the city was alive with music and art. Isaacson was on stage in June talking about da Vinci with philanthropist and financier David Rubenstein. Here's Rubenstein. Why did you pick Leonardo? You've written books about geniuses yeah. uh, from Kissinger to Einstein to, to Steve Jobs and so forth. Why did you pick Leonardo? Well, Leonardo was great at spotting patterns. He loved to see all sorts of different things. They oh, wow, the curl of the water, the curl of the hair, the curl of the wind, they all follow the same formulas. And I was beginning to see a pattern in the people I wrote about. Uh, even Henry Kissinger, who is, as you know, extraordinarily smart, but smart people are a dime a dozen. The people who matter are the creative people. And he was very creative in the way he okay. approached the three-way balance. And going step by step through each one of the people, it was the connection of the humanities to the sciences, or you know, connections across disciplines, especially with Steve Jobs, Einstein, and Ben Franklin. And I said, who's the exemplar of that? In fact, Steve Jobs would say, you know, his hero was Leonardo because he loved art. He loved uh, uh, you know, uh, Steve did. He loved calligraphy. He loved design. He loved engineering. He also loved uh, electronics. And he said, well, Leonardo's the great hero. He pulls it together. So if you had all these individuals together, who would get the highest score on an SAT test? Yeah, uh, Einstein. You know, the interesting thing is there's only one person in that entire mix who is really smart, meaning Albert Einstein. He had the mental processing power you see rarely in people, whether it's Newton or Einstein, or in our day and generation, we've known, I guess, I'll say them out loud, you know, Larry Summers or Bill Gates, and you go, oh, wow, that person has absolute mental processing power. The others were part of my theory that smart people only get you, being smart only gets you so far. And so Ben Franklin's not the smartest of the founders. I mean, you have Jefferson, Madison, all these amazing people. But he's actually the glue that can bring people together. So uh, if you could have dinner with any of these geniuses that you've written about, uh, who would you like to Well, up until recently, it's like, okay, man, you know, especially with the beer you'd have, you'd want uh, Ben Franklin. But now I'm just so totally entranced by Leonardo da Vinci. He, he's just a 
fun, you know, he's somebody who always had friends around. I, I tell you, I mean, if he were alive today, Jim, he should be at the top of your list to run the Aspen Institute. Because wherever he goes, he gathers, you know, he goes to the court of Milan and he gathers the smartest, you know, artists, the smartest sculptors, but also the smartest playwrights and mathematicians. Luca Pacioli is recruited by Leonardo to the court. And every night they put on, an, you know, a Sforza Ideas Festival. And he is somebody that would just be energizing to be When with. you're writing about somebody who was born in 1452 and lived in the 1400s, there's not as much uh, contemporaneous uh, descriptions of them as when you're writing about somebody who's been alive when you're alive. So uh, if you could actually know or have a chance to meet with Leonardo, what would you like to ask him that you couldn't get right. out of your research? First, to uh, quickly take on the premise, there's more than 7,000 pages of his notebooks. And, you know, you can go see them in my townhouse because you can print out parts of them, but I, you know, also go visit them. And you go page by page, and they're all crammed with wonderful stuff. That's a lot of resources that we don't have for Steve Jobs. I go to Steve Jobs to talk to him. In the 1990s, he was working on Next Computer. I say, okay, let's get all your memos. You cannot retrieve, you know, his emails and memos from there. Paper is an absolutely wonderful technology for the storage and retrieval of information. So, with, you know, Leonardo, so if you're writing things, your tweets and your Facebook posts are not going to be available 500 years from now or even 50 years from now. But if you take notes on paper, it's there. So we have a lot more on Leonardo than you think. Um, but if you could ask him any question. Yeah, the question, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm struggling here. The biggest question on Leonardo is why did you not finish a lot of your stuff? Let's talk about that. Yeah, and um, whether it was the treatises, he was re writing about 15 treatises on anatomy, flying machines, etc., or his paintings, Adoration of the Magi, St. Jerome in the Wilderness. The concept, he nails it, and then he disappears. That was the most encouraging thing about the book, right. that, that you could be a... Uh, a genius and not uh, finish things. Yeah. And so I just wondered if, you know, if not finishing things is a sign of genius. I hope so. And I have lessons from Leonardo at the end. I don't want to spoil them all, but one of them is procrastinate. And I say, you know, we don't actually need to learn from Leonardo because we can do it naturally, right. procrastinate. But he had a particular way of procrastinating in which he kept gathering more things and letting it ferment. I do think that there's something good about the fact that he screwed up, didn't finish, didn't deliver. Uh, two things good about it. One is he was such a perfectionist, he doesn't give it up. Take St. Jerome in the Wilderness. It's one of his early paintings. He carries it with him his whole life. He starts like in 1480, and he gets the neck muscles wrong. But in 1508, he dissects a human body and has all the neck muscles, and he redoes the painting. Likewise, the Mona Lisa starts in 1503 for some silk merchant. It's his silk merchant's wife. You know, 14 years later, Leonardo's on his deathbed still trying to get the smile exactly right. So it's like he was obsessed with not letting go. So let's talk about his birth and his life. Um, he's born, as I said, in 1452. Born where? He's born in Vinci, hence the name, or the Da and Vinci. And he's born uh, out of wedlock? He was very lucky. Great good fortune to be born out of wedlock. His father, grandfather, great-grandfather, and great-great-grandfather were all notaries. And he would have been a, expected to be a notary, except for 
illegitimate children could not inherit the notary business or become members of the Guild of Notaries, and he would have been a very bad notary. I mean, as you say, he doesn't like finishing things, he doesn't like, you know... A notary was a much more significant job yeah, than Yeah, it, it was like being, I guess, uh, private equity or... Almost as important as private equity, right. Uh, and uh, so, you know, being a notary was an important job. It was like being a solicitor. You were a lawyer, not a trial lawyer. So his father was a notary. Who was the mother? The mother, you will find out mostly for the first time in my book, although I don't want to take full credit for it. Uh, his mother, we know very little about. She's not on the birth certificate. You know, his father and grandfather, notaries, they have all sorts of things on the birth certificate, including the godfathers and all, but not the mother. Five years later, you learn her first name for a tax reason. It sort of says, son of Katerina, now married to Akadabrigia. You know, it sort of mentions her, but we never knew her last name. And it was generally thought that she was slightly older and a, perhaps a slave, because slaves had been coming in around that time with the fall of Constantinople and other things, so Arab slaves had been coming in. That's totally wrong. And it shows that there's always something new to rediscover about Leonardo. As I say, I don't want to take the credit. Uh, Martin Kemp, who's coming to our Leonardo Festival, about a very old, distinguished former professor emeritus at Oxford, along with a group of other researchers, and I was somewhat involved, go through a whole lot of names, everybody's around, and the woman is named Katerina, Katerina Lippi. She was um, an orphan, a uh, very, very poor family from Vinci, uh, and, went and had control of her two-year-old or three-year-old brother. She was about 14, and she has an affair with Piero da Vinci, uh, right before Piero ends up marrying a much more noble woman. But uh, the father uh, takes uh, possession Charged. of the yep. child, and he raises him for the first couple yeah, of years? Yeah, there's somewhat joint custody, because we do know a few times when, uh, because uh, Katerina marries a kiln worker who's very close to the da Vinci family. I think it was an arranged marriage, because it was somebody who worked on one of the da Vinci family pieces of property. And we see that he goes back and forth. There are times he has drawings, beautiful drawings in the Arno Valley, from so, the walk between Vinci and this tiny hamlet nearby. Leonardo's father then marries several more times and has 12 other children? Correct. Um, but the first two marriages are childless, which is somewhat complicated, because until he's about 15 or 16 or 17, Leonardo has no siblings. And there's always a question of should he be legitimated, meaning you, you can go do to that. church. Well, you know, if you, yeah, it's... Why did his father not legitimate him? Which he his father, been. by the time Leonardo is 12, realizes Leonardo is truly his own person, is a very good artist, has been brought to Florence to live with his father. His father apprentices him in the second best art shop in Florence, and... Um, realizes this kid will make a really bad notary. I mean, because he's not like finishing anything, but he's always drawing and sculpting. And so I think um, the elder Leonardo is always like, uh, I'm going to get married and have a son. Hey, so, who, uh, who he does eventually, who becomes a notary. So uh, at 14, he's um, apprenticed to a very talented yeah. artist. Yeah. And then from 14 to 20, he more or less works there learning painting and sculpting. Is that right? Yeah, but he pretends to Verrocchio and surpasses, of course, the master, especially in the details uh, that aren't just sort of drawn lines, but sort of have the use of shadows, how water flows. Uh, the baptism, uh, there are a couple things to look at. One is the baptism of Christ, which comes out of that studio. 
in which Leonardo does the angel on the far left, but also the ripples of water on the feet. And you just see the huge difference between the background stuff Leonardo's doing and poor Verraccio, who according to one of the early biographers, which is Vasari, but uh, Vasari is a, the only contemporary writing about all this, but he exaggerates. You know, he's fake news. Uh, but it's sort of, uh, Verraccio throws down his brush in, dis in, in horror because he's been surpassed by his apprentice. I think that's probably, you know, sort of cable TV so, version. So at the end, age of, let's say, 2021, 20, uh, Leonardo gets his own studio, or goes on his own? Goes on his own with his father, who, you know, fathers of 20-something sometimes go through this. His father's realizing, you're not finishing anything. You know, you're really talented, but you're not applying yourself. And starts writing the contracts for Leonardo. One is to do an adoration of the Magi for a um, church in Florence. Another is to do the St. Jerome I mentioned. And the contracts are, I mean, even, you know, your legal department wouldn't be able to parse them. You have, you know, sort of payments, but he's got to pay for some of the stuff. But then there's a land that he gets, but he has to pay the, it's all complicated. And he loses everything, including the picture if he doesn't finish it. This is... Adoration of the Magi, and he doesn't finish it. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Today's conversation features author and Aspen Institute President Walter Isaacson. His latest book, Leonardo da Vinci, was released today, October 17th. He's speaking with David Rubenstein, the co-CEO of the Carlyle Group. Coming up, Isaacson talks about da Vinci's interest in the relationship between humans and nature. Here's Rubenstein. So at the age of 21, he's arrested for sodomy uh, with three other men. Uh, what happened then? He's arrested, um, you know, he is gay at an interesting time because he's in Florence, and suddenly Florence is the most tolerant place ever on earth up until that time. And they like immigrants, meaning all the people fleeing the Ottoman Empire, Debacol, bringing algebra and right. wonderful thoughts, just like when we took refugees from World War II, they brought things like relativity and quantum theory that could help us build the bomb and win the war. And uh, the slang nickname for homosexual in Germany and other places was Florenzer, meaning somebody lives in Florence, because Florence was known to be tolerant that way. But he was never convicted, right? He was never convicted, arrested twice. He's arrested, the person doesn't come forward, it's an anonymous allegation, and they get put on probation. Fortunately, one of the four is related to the Medici, so that, you know, helps, and they get out of it, but then the next time they get arrested, which is a few days later, there's still nobody's going to come forward, so it's dismissed. But it's a complicated issue, as it would be, I mean, we can imagine this, because it is illegal to at least commit uh, sodomy or to but engage in sodomy. But he was not trying to hide it particularly. He, he dressed, how did he dress? What was his he appearance like? He dressed in, you know, purple tunics and pink tunics that were, came up high to his thigh, and it was... Um, he dressed with a certain flamboyance. And he was very handsome. Uh, yeah, he was known for his staggeringly good looks and grace. I mean, he 
uh, he was ran, he was strong, he could bend horseshoes, so it was said. He could um, ride horses more beautifully than anything else. And if you've seen Vitruvian Man, you know, the nude guy doing jumping jacks in the square in the circle, that drawing, that is Leonardo painting Leonardo, I'm pretty sure, because every, every aspect of the face looks like Leonardo's face. And so let's talk about some of the things he was obsessed with. He was obsessed with uh, the human body and anatomy, and yeah. how did he learn more about it? He, did, he dissected humans to learn more about what humans were like? Yes, I mean, as I said with um, St. Jerome in the wilderness, you know, your neck muscles, you can sort of see them or whatever, but he decides he's got to dissect, and he goes, you know... Where does he get the bodies, and is that legal well, to do this? It, sorry? Is, is it legal to go get these it's bodies? It's semi-legal. I mean, he did it in the morgue in Florence. Uh, when he goes and does it in Rome for a while, he gets stopped by the Pope. Uh, anatomy and uh, dissections and uh, autopsies were just becoming legal, but it was sort of local option. And But what Leonardo does that nobody else had ever done before, because others had poked around a little bit, taking the flesh off to see the muscles. He goes down layer by layer by layer. In his notebooks, he talks about how, long, how far you can get before the stench and the degradation, because these are not, there's no formaldehyde or anything. So, and he does pictures in layers, so you can see okay. the beginning of the organs, and then he takes the intestines off, you can see that. So it was the first anatomy drawings, they're in Windsor Castle, they're amazing. He's also obsessed with optics, how people see. Yeah. He thought sight was the most important of the senses, and how did he uh, try to, in his paintings, other things, make it clear that optics and the way you look at things are so important? Up until his uh, discovery, this is the great connection of science to art, one of a hundred in the book, and that's the theme of the book, but up until Leonardo comes along, uh, the way they did art in the Italian Renaissance and most other places was called disegno, which meant you drew the line. If I were drawing you, I'd say, okay, here's the line I'm going to draw, et cetera, et cetera. Leonardo realizes for two reasons that there are no lines in nature. Uh, one reason is he dissects a human eye. It's got a very wide retina. The light hits at different parts of the retina, so there's a natural blurring. In other words, if you take your finger right there and put it this close, you can see right through your finger, as he shows in his notebook, because different parts of the retina see things, so there's no clear lines. So he decides, he invents what is called famously somato, which is the blurring of lines, and it comes from his dissection of the human eye and optics experiment. It also comes to some extent from his math. He was a very mediocre mathematician because he had never gone to school because he was illegitimate, which was another benefit of being illegitimate. He didn't have to go to school. But, um, so he didn't learn math, but he did understand that a line is a mathematical concept, and the point of a line or something is indivisibly small, and uh, thus you could not have information in a line. You had to have it in a, a continuum. He was analog, not digital. Uh, he also was very obsessed with nature and the relation between humans and nature. How did he um, try to study that? Yeah, it was uh, before the scientific method. I mean, Galileo and uh, uh, Bacon and um, others hadn't yet come along. But his way of theorizing was instead of sort of, up until then, people just read what was the scholasticism, which was the classics merged with religious overlay, and from that you deduced the way the world was. He said, well, that's ridiculous. I'm going to ignore all that. I'm going to just observe. And so he's the first person to take 
observations and do inductions like, okay, I see you. The water always flows in this direction, so there must be a law that causes it to flow in this direction. And he's trying to figure the patterns of nature out. His way of doing it, he was not either trained enough or smart enough to do grand theories like Newton comes along and says force equals mass times acceleration, you know, those type of theories. But Leonardo figures out patterns, and that's his rudimentary form of theorizing. And he was also obsessed with flight, birds flying and humans flying. So why was he obsessed with that, and did he actually devise um, machines that could enable people to fly, or he tried to? Yeah, one of the things I learned in doing this book that I don't think is either well-known or known at all is that his flying machines started like much of what he did from the last supper to the machines because he was a stage producer. His job when he gets to Milan at age 29 or 30, when he runs away from Florence, comes to Milan, is he produces pageants for the Duke of Milan every night. They didn't have TV, they didn't have internet, but they had pageants and plays every night and he was Joseph Papp, and he did spectaculars and stuff. So uh, you can go through, as I did, the plays that were being performed at the castle at the time, and it's always angels are coming down from the ceiling, and wonderful what are called ingenii, meaning ingenious devices, and that, like, helicopter, that famous helicopter, and everybody says, gee, how did he do that? He invented the first helicopter. No, that was to bring an angel down from the ceiling in something called Pluto's Cave. I mean, it was a play they put on. But being Leonardo, having done that, he said, well, let me try to figure out how I can make a real one that we can really fly. But the, the inventions that he would draft, none of them actually came to pass. Did they, all these mechanical devices and wonderful things that were going to change the world, he didn't actually ever build any of them, did he? He built very, very few of them. And there's one or two, the wheelock of the gun, whatever. And once again, it is the downside of Leonardo. You get slightly disappointed that there's too much fantasy there. And then slowly you get your head around, well, actually, this is good. This is somebody who pushed the edge of fantasy. We can relate to it a little bit more. It wasn't like just he you know, went into his dorm room one day and invented BASIC for the computer, and it worked. Uh, but he always blurred the line between reality and fantasy. Now, he was a good observer when it came to flying machines. He went down to the moats at the castle in Milan and notice that dragonflies, whether the, wing, the four wings, and the two wings go up, and the back two wings go down, and they alternate, and which goes up or down faster, and then he compared it to various birds. Things that you and I could notice if we actually took the effort, and he does make devices that work quite well for mechanics, not for actually flying, that are based on these observations. Now, you mentioned he went from uh, Florence to Milan, and that was around the age of 31 or something mm -hmm. like that. So he goes there, but he, to goes there, when he goes there, he tries to explain to the ruling uh, leader that he's actually good in something that he had never, never had any experience in. Can you explain it's that? It's a wonderful best job application letter in history, uh, an 11-paragraph job letter uh, from Leonardo to the Duke of Milan, I'll call him. He was acting duke. Um, and the first 11 paragraphs describe all the mechanical things you can build. I can build forts, I can, you know, weapons of war that knock ladders off of things. I can do size and, and tanks that will blah, blah, blah. I can also engineer the moving of water. Paragraph 11, oh, and it didn't say oh, but it's just paragraph 11. I can also paint and sculpt as well as any man. And it was because two or three things. He always had the fantasy that he was more of an engineer than an artist. 
being an engineer was a slightly, uh, being an artisan and told Leonardo and then his frenemy Michelangelo come along was not a high class profession. You would just, it was like being a cobbler or a fashion you know, maker or whatever, or a gold beater or jewelry maker. It was a craftsman's job and he wanted to be elevated and there was a new class of people being formed. He was one of the leaders of it, but Alberti, Brunelleschi, and others were, well, you were engineer artist, and that's what he wanted to be. But you read the letter, and it's half fantasy. That said, it wasn't total fantasy, because he gets the job as the engineer, and Milan is always at war, I mean, between France and the Pope and Italian city-states. So I don't think he can fake it, even though he didn't really know what he was doing. You mentioned his notebooks, and there are 7,000 pages of them. Uh, let's talk about that for a moment. Uh, he just would carry around on his waist Belt, a, yeah. a notebook, and he would write things down, and mm -hmm. he didn't have a lot of paper, so he'd write over things. And, and how did he uh, uh, save all these things, and where do we find them all? By the way, it's not a bad idea. I do it, too. Okay. Carry a notebook. This is about the size of some of the ones he put on his belt. They're called field notes. They're, you know, those okay. were his field notes. And I have dozens and dozens of these that someday will be valuable. Well, I guess, except for, you know, they're in boxes. I can't remember where they are, so, and we keep moving. But uh, So, like, for example, uh, Bill Gates famously bought from, I think, Arm & Hammer something that was then called the Codex Hammer, which has now been changed. But what is that? So, uh, of all the notebooks Leonardo did, about three, well, about half are lost, but that's a much lower percentage than the number of your right. emails from the 80s that are lost. So, it's pretty cool to have half of this guy's thinking. Of those, most of them were rearranged. People had these little notebooks and then the big notebooks. And so, Tia Leon, I mean, there are people at, in the early 1500s after he dies, they get from his heir and uh, uh, Melzi, Francisco Melzi, uh, these notebooks, and they say, oh, what a beautiful picture of the helicopter. They cut it out and they put it. So a lot of the note codices or codexes, uh, like the Codex Atlantica, are you know a couple hundred pages, but they're pieced together from a 30-year period of his life, where whoever put that one together thought, okay, I want that picture and that picture, and put them in. There is one that is on geology and water and earth sciences that is called now the Codex Lester. And it's never been taken apart or rearranged. It is in the exact order he wrote it. It is, to me, the most interesting of the notebooks, although it's almost all about geology, physics, the flow of water, why the moon shines, why you can see the moon when it's dark, meaning He's the first person to figure out, and it's in the Codex Lester, that when you see the new moon, just sort of faintly, it's the reflection of the sun's light hitting the earth and then getting to the moon. So all of that is in there, and of course, Bill Gates, this is, you know, he's a total geek for this. He really, really wanted it, and he bought it from Armand Hammer, and he was good enough to let it revert to the real name. And he paid about $30 million for it, and it's worth... A lot more now, I guess, probably. I guess. If your uh, book, it'll be worth he, a lot more. The problem with Leonardo's notebooks is they aren't well translated and annotated, and that's why some work had to be done on it. And he has been working for three years with Martin Kemp, who I mentioned, right. a guy named Frederick Schroeder, who is a curator, and others, to do the ultimate great translation of the Codex Lester. And it's not coming out until 2019. I don't know why but they gave it to me about a month or two ago.
Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. If you like today's show, check out Einstein's Creativity. Biographer Walter Isaacson delves into another one of his subjects and explains the source of Albert Einstein's creativity. Where did it come from? How was it reflected in his life? Find the show by searching Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or find a link to the episode in our show notes. Coming up, Isaacson talks about why the Mona Lisa is the greatest painting ever painted. Here's David Rubenstein. Uh, back to um, Leonardo for a moment. Uh, let's go through the, uh, make sure you get the uh, travel right. Mm. He goes to Milan and he's there for how long? That's a good question. He gets there in uh, 1482. Uh, he's there 17 years, right. 1499, because okay. that's when the French. And then he goes back to Florence. To Florence. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about uh, for a moment. Yeah, but just real quickly, born near Florence, Venti is part of Florence. When he's 29 or 30, he moves to Milan, 17 years there, comes back to Florence, and then wanders a bit to Milan and other places, ends up in France. You mentioned Melzi. Um, he had some lovers or partners, yeah. and are they well-known? Yeah, well, they will be after this book, I hope, because they're all amazingly interesting people. And I think there was probably more of a discomfort. There haven't been a lot of soup-to-nut biographies of Leonardo. There have been great works like, uh, I think, um, Eric quoted from Kenneth Clark's work, which Eric was written in the 30s or 40s, right? I can't remember. But, you know, he's a great art historian, some of you may remember. It's mainly about his art. And I think there was some discomfort in the 30s, 40s, 50s writing about this. Uh, to me, it's part of his life and a kind of cool part of his life. So the first real man in his life is a musician named Atalante who actually travels with him from Florence to Milan. When they go from Florence to Milan, I said he writes a letter, I want to be an engineer, I can be good for you. He's actually sent as a part of uh, cultural diplomacy because the uh, Medici in Florence have got to make up with the new Duke of Milan, and they send these two musicians, Atalante and Leonardo, because he was a stage guy and he knew how to do music. And Leonardo creates a new form of lyre, which is a, was a metal but bowed instrument, and he and Atalante were part of the cultural delegation that gets to Milan, and Atalante is painted and drawn by Leonardo, is, I don't know exactly their relationship, but they're a companion. They travel together all the time. And uh, there's a painting by Leonardo, one of the almost only 15 or so good finished paintings, called The Musician. And we saw it in Milan. I'm not sure where it's normally based, it's, uh, but it's his only male portrait. And nobody knows who it's of. And it's clearly Atalante, because you look in the notebooks, and. You know, Atalante with his face raised and the sun coming in is something in the notebook and there's the picture of him. And then you have Salai, a younger scamp. Salai, it means the little devil. He's a thief, a scamp, a street urchin, a poor kid, but ends up uh, in Leonardo's studio as a young man and eventually um, is a partner of Leonardo. Um, And it's an amusing relationship because... He keeps stealing things, and Leonardo just can't help. 
writing in his notebooks. He stole this guy's pen. He stole the cloak. He stole the leather we were going to use for the play that was welcoming so-and-so into town. But Salai's there all the way through. So your book points out that he was a genius, which we know, and that he did so many different things in so many different areas. But today, uh, if somebody were to look at uh, his legacy today, the most visible symbols of his legacy are the paintings. And that's what he was a true genius in. Okay. Despite what he wanted, you know, engineer and painter, he dies in the arms, or at least that's part of the myth or reality, of the king of okay. France, who's made him the engineer and painter for the king of France. But his engineering, despite what he wanted, was at best um, smart, ingenious, somewhat of a fantasy. His art was the okay. two greatest paintings ever painted. So let's three go through the paintings. We have extant, there are how many paintings? Depending how you look at them, you could say about 15. Because as I said, you have the Adoration of the Magi, but it's half finished. You have two Virgin of the Rocks, one of which is probably half done by people in his studio because he got into a pay dispute with the confraternity he was doing it for. So you, if you want to say paintings that were at least mainly by him, and are mainly finished. It's about 15. Okay, one of them, only one, is in the United States. Where is that? And it's in the National Gallery. Thanks to, you would know the story better. Was it Carter? Who was it? No, it was bought uh, in, uh, by the Mellon family, bought Mellon. it for $5 million, uh, which was a large sum of money in uh, 1967. Yeah, but, it, but unbelievably good deal. So they bought it from the Prince of Liechtenstein in six, 1967 for $5 million. It's the only one in uh, the, the United only States. One in, it's the only one out of Europe. Uh, right. I mean, um, and it's the only one that, I mean, there's some floating around or whatever, but you're, we know for absolute sure that this is his painting. We know right. who he painted. We know when he did it. We know every stroke on it was his. And it's, with all due respect, not the best of his paintings, but it's one of the most interesting because every single element of the Mona Lisa is in right. Ginevra da Benci. And Ginevra da Benci is very early in his career. And by what I mean by every single element, I mean the mysterious smile, the eyes that follow you, uh, the three-quarters profile, so you have an emotional, psychological connection. But even the fact that there's rivers that flow in the background slowly and almost merge in the swirling way with her body, which was Leonardo's vision of how humans connect with the, co the cosmos, the macrocosm, microcosm thing, which is the theme of uh, the Mona Lisa. So that was painted on a kind of a canvas, mm -hmm. right? So um, he paints The Last Supper. Tell, talk about how The Last Supper was painted and what it was painted on and why it deteriorated. Yeah, I mean, here's a guy who's supposed to be a good scientist and he screws this up royally because he's painting directly on a wall in the um, refractory of the church in Milan where you can still go see it. And uh, his teacher, Baraccio, had never done frescoes. But the technique for doing a fresco was exactly the opposite of what Leonardo would like. Because you would take just a small patch, and it would be wet plaster, and you had to paint that patch before the plaster dried, mm -hmm. and then move on to the next patch, and you couldn't then change it. Leonardo, as I said, changed pictures for 16 years. You know, he'd be redoing it. And he, the way to do that is you have to use oil paint, where you can just do, because he used oil paint with just minimum amount of pigment in it. So it's almost like a glaze, and you just do thin stroke, thin stroke. But if you're painting on a wall, you have to use a tempura, which means the pigments are with egg yolk or something as a binder, not oil, because oil doesn't stick to a wet wall. 
as he found out. And so, but instead of doing it the correct way as a fresco, he thinks he has a way of using an oil tempura mix and painting it slowly on a dry wall, and the rest is sad. So he painted it, took three years to paint, mm -hmm. and it deteriorated with about 100 years later, it deteriorated, but now it's in reasonable shape? It's gorgeous now, slightly controversial. We were there recently. Controversial because? Because Penin Brennan and the curators who restored it, it's about the 20th restoration in the past 400 years, they go back to every single restoration and every single copy, because it was one of the most copied paintings. I mean, you go to uh, Elliot Gerson's college at Oxford in the dining hall, there's a copy from the original, you know, done by one of the students. So you go back all the copies, and they kind of fill it in a bit with a slightly different type of paint, so that if you're very technical, you can see, well, this is what we're guessing, that right. this pixel was blue, uh, this blue but they fill it in slightly so not every piece of color on right. that wall was Leonardo's. And everybody in that picture is Jewish, right? Uh, y <laughs> yes. Right. Okay. I won't, I won't get into the uh, St. Yeah. Okay, John. So St. John was a little, uh, well, John is falling asleep at the dinner. Let's go to the most famous painting in the history of the world, the Mona Lisa. Yes. Uh, why is it the most famous painting in the history of the world? Why is this, of all the paintings that have ever been painted, why is this the ultimate painting? Yeah, there's a pretty simple answer. It is, by orders of magnitude, the greatest painting ever painted. But that's, it is the most beautiful painting okay. ever painted. It's the most emotional painting ever painted. I will pick any element of it. You can pick the lips, let us say. The Mona Lisa's lips take about 15 years to paint with the tiny bits of glaze. While he is doing it, he starts it in about 1503, he has been interested in anatomy, he's gone so far, but then he decides there's about 22 pages in the notebooks in which he's taking the flesh off the cadavers of faces and discovering things, first the surface stuff you and I could have discovered but we don't, which is that the muscle when you purse your lip, it's easy to purse both lips. And you can purse your bottom lip alone because it's one muscle. But you can't purse your top lip alone because there's no, the muscle doing the top lip also connects to other things. Likewise, how the corner of the eye connects to the corner. There's a nerve that goes down there and controls both. You can't move one eye separately from another, but that's also true that the nerves do other things there. So he has all these dissections. And over and over again, you see on his pages, he's doing different types of smiles, showing which muscles come from the brain, I mean, which nerves come from the brain, and which come from the spinal cord. They're just all the subtleties of what the, we'll move The it. subject of the painting, is it a royal person? Or? No, it is a soap merchant's wife. But real quickly, I know I'm going on and on, but just why the lips are so good. He also discovers that if you look directly and it hits the center of your retina, you see detail. You see the tiniest of lines. But if I'm looking at you and, you know, and I'm seeing Michael Eisner there, what I see better are the shadows, because these sides of the retina pick up shadows better. The reason the Mona Lisa's smile flickers and moves is if you look directly at it, you see that tiny detail turned out, and it looks like she's not smiling. But the minute you look at her cheek or her forehead or her shoulder, she smiles at you. 
So, I mean, it's magical. It is augmented reality, and, just, and I can do that with the eyes, I can do it with the river. Everything about that picture connects art and science and emotion. How long did it take him to paint that? It starts in 1503, and we know it's still by, it's on, it's by, right by his deathbed in 1519. So why is it in France and not in Italy? Well, he moves to France uh, at the very end of his life because young King Francis, you know, a great humanist, just like his father-in-law, King Louis XII, falls in love with Leonardo. They all capture Milan for, you know, in the summer. It's what they do in the summers. Right. Capture Milan and then ignore it and then go back and capture it again. And they see the Last Supper and they want to take the Last Supper back, which is hard to do because it's painted badly on a wall. Um, but he gets Leonardo to come and he gives him a Chateau d'Amboise, you know, right. cool place. Um, now that, but you were about to ask something about the motion that I cut well, you off on of no, Mona no, Lisa. No, Mona Lisa, um, it has left France uh, once, at least, come to the United States under Kennedy administration, right? Under the Jackie Kennedy right. administration, Right, and how, you know yeah. the story how that came about? Or I, All I know is Jackie... Well, she charmed the uh, yeah. uh, president of France, Charles de Gaulle, and she said to him, can, when they were visiting, can we have the Mona Lisa? And he said yes. Uh, the um, cultural minister resigned in protest, mm -hmm. but it did come over, and um, it was here for a few the months. The lines around in New York City, which I've seen photographs of at the Metropolitan Museum. I know it was in Washington as well, but right. I've seen the lines at the So um, it was here for a brief period of time. It'll never leave again, apparently. But today... Well, the other thing that would cause a fall of the French government, but um, Pierre de Louvian, who is uh, the curator of her at uh, the Louvre wants to do it, is it needs cleaning. I mean, she's not that dark. This was like well, the Sistine Chapel. 500 you, years. You... Right, and the varnish is yellowed and cracked, and just like they clean the other picture right next, or nearby it, which is um, St. Anne, mother and child, he's desperate to clean it, but he said, mm -hmm. you really, Macron needs a major supermajority before he can survive. So Leonardo uh, lives until the age of 67. Correct. My age, so I'm disappointed to read he died at 67. But um, he, almost there, what did he do in his will? Who did he leave all of his things to? Yeah, he left, um, Melzi was his heir. This is the third companion, male companion he has. Um, he leaves Salai, it was a complicated thing because Melzi supplants a bit Salai, but Salai is still around. Uh, people in Aspen can probably f understand that. Um, and so Salai gets half a vineyard, but there's actually a new companion who gets the other half of the vineyard, but he gives all the art and manuscripts to Melty. Walter Isaacson writes about geniuses like Leonardo da Vinci, and he's the president of the Aspen Institute. He's speaking with David Rubenstein, a former lawyer and domestic policy advisor to President Carter. This week on our new sister podcast, Aspen Insight, a longtime international journalist is sharing his knowledge with young Syrians. We started teaching them, you know, the ABCs of journalism. We didn't teach them skills because they're already skillful. They know how to write. They know how to film. They know how to do podcasts. They know <laughs> how to do everything. But what they didn't know is that how to find the truth. Amjad Tadros is building a credible news outlet that's getting to the heart of what's happening in Syria. Also on the show, an interview with Walter Isaacson. He talks about Leonardo da Vinci and stepping down from the Aspen Institute. 
Back to the episode. Here's David Rubenstein. After all this work you did on him, do you admire him more than you did before you started it? Yeah, but it, uh, it was a roller coaster because you come and you're completely awed. Like, I mean, for years, people, especially my publisher, you got to do Leonardo da Vinci. And it's like, no, I mean, whoa, that's Mount Everest. You know, you just don't climb that one. And I was completely awed by him. And then as you get closer, he has a wonderful tale in his uh, notebooks about uh, it was a riddle. You get a huge giant, but the closer you get, the smaller it shrinks as you see it better. And it's a shadow. It, the man holding a lantern with a shadow, he's, anyway, you have to be there to, but it's, as you get closer to him, you realize, wait, he's not a genius, and that helicopter didn't fly. And, you know, he wasn't really good at math. He messes up some of the math things. And when he's working on squaring the circle, which he does as a kid, he does with, at Milan, and on his deathbed, he's still trying to figure out how to square the circle. All these things, so he's not as smart as you go, whoa, uh, this is disappointing. And that, then you realize that not having received wisdom, he observes everything for himself. He says, I'm a disciple of experience. You tell me something, I'm going to have to look at it and discover myself. And so you go up and down as you see, well, fantasy is so much a part of what he does. And then you realize that's the cool thing. You got to blur fantasy with reality or that he doesn't finish things. Well, his conceptions are perfect and he doesn't finish things. So discovering that he's an actual human being, just like, well, not you and me, but just like uh, our kids uh, who have strengths and weaknesses and that he's not, that means we can try to be more like him. When we go outside and see that bird there that's coming down we can say, does the wings go up faster or down faster when they do it? We can try to observe like Leonardo. We can try to be curious, which is the, right. you know, playfully curious and inquisitive, which was his ultimate trait. Those are things we can do. We can't be Newton. We can't be Einstein, but we can try to be more like Leonardo. Now, your next book is? Jeez, I actually truly, I, have, I don't know. No, I don't want to, I want to, Move off well, you of could the, write one about another Renaissance man, yourself. Why don't you do an autobiography? Yeah, right, right. No, no. Uh, that would be bad. Um, <laughs> um, you know, we're moving part-time to New Orleans, and I think there's a book in there somewhere mm -hmm. that all books have themes. The theme of Leonardo is that to truly be creative, you have to work across mm -hmm. disciplines. A theme of a New Orleans book, which is, is to truly be creative, a diversity of talents, like the stuff that goes into jazz or the food there. I could see doing a book that revolves around the 1880s to 1910 when Storyville is creating jazz. Leonardo da Vinci, where'd you think of that title? How'd you get that title? <laughs> David and I discussed whether it should just be called Leonardo. Um, the problem or the upside would be a lot of Leonardo DiCaprio mm -hmm. fans would yeah. buy it. Right. And halfway through, they'd say, wait a minute, you right. know. Uh, well, it's a great book. It's a great read. And I've read all of your books. And this is another spectacular thank book. Thank you so for reading it. And thank you for the good right. questions. We have some Appreciate time uh, for questions. Questions? Questions? Um, right here somewhere. Thank you so much. That was absolutely genial what you just did. I'm going to do something that is unforgivable, Good. which is to suggest to a magnificent writer like you, Walter, that you write a book about a woman. Pick a woman. 
Well, here's the, um, I agree. Um, there, I'll, I'll answer it in three different ways. Um, I felt that strongly, and my daughter introduced me to Ada Lovelace when she was writing as a high school kid, the importance of the history of technology. And so the innovators begins and ends with Ada Lovelace, Lord Byron's daughter, who combines poetry and processors to create the concept of a general purpose computer. I think there may be a good book to be done on her. It, it was difficult. I even thought of trying to sustain an entire biography of her, but for reasons I won't get into, there's just not, there's not that much material. I'm working with Time Magazine, you know, on the great geniuses. We're going to do an issue in November of history. And then you have to address the question of why are there so few women, say, considered among the great geniuses. And it's, you know, for reasons. It's not, you know, just happenstance. What? Right, and that's why I wanted Ada Lovelace. And by the way, if you read The Innovators, Grace Hopper has a whole chapter. The women who do the programming of ENIAC have whole chapters. I've been trying to get people to do movies on these people because, especially in the computer world, the invention of software was done more by women than by men because men thought, you know, boys with their toys, they thought the hardware was the thing. Um, but there are reasons why in the time of Aristotle, let's start with Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato, you know, nobody quite is up there <laughs> saying who, you know, well, there was no Mrs. Socrates. but. Um, and then you go all the way through. Now, you can look at uh, Einstein, the great Solvay conference when he does it, and there is you know, one great woman, you know, Marie Curie, because she, and she wins the Nobel Prize twice for chemistry and physics, but she's one of maybe 40 people at this conference. She's the only woman. I could see doing a biography of her. Um, and I have thought of some other women to do biographies of, one of them may or may not fit the mold, but it's a woman who created the best, um, how to say it, um, uh, sporting house in Storyville, and first hires Jelly Roll Morton to be the pianist. She's an octoroon, so she crosses the color line. It's right when Plessy V. Ferguson tries to draw the color line. She creates this whole district, or she's the centerpiece of a district, in which jazz is invented. So they're things I'm wrestling with, uh, but there are good women uh, that should be written about. Okay, other questions? So you said that the picture died, when he died, the Mona Lisa was his, at his bedside. Yeah. So in fact, did she ever see the picture or did the merchant who ordered the picture, did he refuse it or what happened? <laughs> no, I think he wanted it. Um, it was interesting, at, in 1503 when he's starting to do it, the richest, most demanding art patron, perhaps in his history, Beatrice Desta, the Duchess you know, of Mantua, everything else, is saying, I will pay you anything. And she's going there, she's trying to meet him, get the portrait. And he won't do it. He does a sketch of her and then won't turn it into a painting. And yet he picks Lisa, I don't even remember how to pronounce the last name, but Gironda Daly or whatever, who is the wife, second wife of a middle-class silk merchant. Now, he does it for a lot of reasons, one of which is you just look at the picture and you say, okay, I know why he wanted to paint her. But he never delivers it to the silk merchant. And as far as I can tell, looking through all the bank records, he never gets paid by the silk merchant. So clearly, he's doing it not to please a patron, but as a universal picture of his own. And he keeps it 
and travels to France with it because even after 14 years, he's thinking, all right, I can still make this better. You never heard the theory that that was actually a picture of himself in drag. You've heard that I've theory. heard that theory. I've heard that, that it's Salai. Uh, I've heard, uh, I mean, there are many people, everybody, I mean, I must say, even to this week, people have come up to me and said, I have a particular, I've discovered that the Mona Lisa is actually blah, blah, blah. There's a, about four pages in the book where I hope I truly nail it, that the Mona Lisa is Mona Lisa. From a, from a bi biographical perspective, what guides your curiosity in choosing the subjects or themes of your books? Well, I like the intersection of different disciplines, particularly where the humanities intersect with the sciences. And, you know, different people write about, you know, sports heroes or war heroes or political uh, giants. What interests me is how genius is a function not of intelligence but of creativity. And that's what you see in Ben Franklin. That's what you see in Einstein. You know, I mean, Einstein can't even get his doctorate. I mean, he does, in 1905, when he changes all of physics, with quantum theory and relativity. He's a patent, third class patent clerk because he still can't get his doctorate. So, you know, people like that who show that imagination is more important than knowledge, which by the way is an Einstein line, not mine. That's what I like to do. I also like to do people who are a bit inspiring, like Leonardo da Vinci, the, most, the ultimate of that, because he is the world's and history's greatest genius, period. The most creative genius period. But he's also somebody who, as you read about him, you say, oh, I could be more like that. I could actually observe things as closely as he tries to, like uh, how a dragonfly's wings go, or ask the questions he asks, like, why is the sky blue? Or why do fish go through water faster than birds through air, even though water is heavier? These, he lists in his notebook every week, the simple questions that if we paused and observed harder, we could say, oh, we could be more like Leonardo. My favorite, and it's almost the theme of the book because it's the very beginning of the book and the very coda of the book, is in one day he just writes, describe the tongue of the woodpecker. They go, wow, why would you do that? How would you do that? I mean, you have to get a woodpecker and you know, open the thing's mouth. Um, why would you even want to? And it's just curiosity, pure curiosity, not connected, even though half of what he does is connected to his art. Like I, you know, he's trying to figure out how the lips work. Well, that's connected to his art. But there, most of the time, he's being curious for curiosity's sake. And that's why you all are in this room. You're not here because you can get a lot of totally useful knowledge out of an idea festival. You're here because you're curious about things. And if you read about Leonardo, I promise you, you can up that game 50%. Walter, thank you very much for a very interesting conversation. Great. Walter Isaacson runs the Aspen Institute, and his latest biography chronicles the life of Leonardo da Vinci. It's on bookshelves this month. David Rubenstein is an ardent preservationist of American history. He was the chief counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee subcommittee and as chairman of the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. They spoke on stage in June at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. 
Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me. Thank you.